daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, Xi Jinping calls for letting the internet better benefit all countries. And we will hear from the managing director of a globally leading consultancy about the digital economy in China. China is hosting an international forum to foster inter-civilizational dialogue. So we are going to explore some of the possible implications of this China-proposed global civilization initiative. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for letting the internet better benefit all countries. The Chinese leader made the remark on Wednesday in a video address to the 2023 World Internet Conference, an annual event held in the eastern Chinese province of Zhejiang. Xi Jinping has also called for the proper handling of challenges posed by technological innovation, as well as the safe development of artificial intelligence. He suggested that the international community must work together to take building a community with a shared future in cyberspace to a higher level. So, joining us now on the line is Andy Mock, tech analyst and senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you, Ding Hong. So, first of all, Andy, do you agree in this point that the internet? Our cyberspace is yet to、um, fully benefit the people of all countries. I think that absolutely is the case, Ding Hong. So we look at the most basic、uh, level of benefit from the internet. That's just the ability to connect to the internet. And of course, we've made tremendous progress, but still,、uh, more people、uh, still can have more reliable and less expensive internet access. So that's clearly one level, and then as we move up into more sophisticated areas,、um, the ability to develop and use AI is very important as well. So yes, I completely agree that this principle is very relevant and、uh, should be a priority. Hmm. Okay. So President Xi Jinping said that the challenges posed by technological innovation actually include many layers, like、um, conflicts of rules, social risks, as well as those ethical issues. So, what do you think needs to be done if we hope to properly handle these challenges? Well, you know what's very interesting to me is China has. An approach that I would say is very high integrity, meaning that all the different parts complement and fit together and are not in conflict with each other. So when we look at China's approach to IRL in the real world, whether that's relations among countries,、uh, relations between different aspects of society,、uh, it's based on mutual respect and dialogue and. Solving differences through consultation, not conflict or coercion. So it's the same、uh, in cyberspace as well. So I think that you know one of the most important things China brings to the table then is a consistent、uh, and an approach that is high integrity.、Mm, high integrity. So. Uh, with that in mind, actually, President Xi Jinping、uh, proposed a vision for a community with a shared future in cyberspace during the 2015 edition of this event, World Internet Conference. So, do you think、um, over the years any progress has been made in this vision since then? Are we there yet in terms of building such a community with a shared future? Well, I think tremendous progress has been made, Ding Hong. Because first of all, if we roll the clock back, you know, twenty, maybe more than twenty years,、um, you know, China still had a lot to learn, and there were、uh, huge opportunities or challenges in terms of developing the internet within China. And today, there's no question.、Uh, almost everyone in China has internet access, can access. Uh, all of the services and products、uh, that are available in a safe way. So, with 1.4 billion people uh, online 
uh, as consumers as well as providers uh, of services and products. That certainly in and of itself is an enormous contribution. I think the other important piece is uh, that China is proposing or offering uh, this global AI governance uh, initiative. And again, it's based on these consistent principles of respect, uh, mutual respect, respect for sovereignty, uh, mm-hmm. the equality of all countries, whether uh, however big they are, whatever their stage of development, and whatever their development model choices are, that everyone should have fair access to the benefits of, of the Internet and the technologies that sit on top of that, including artificial intelligence. Mm. So exactly talking about artificial intelligence, like you said, um, President Xi Jinping also emphasized that China is willing to work with all parties, all countries to implement this global AI governance initiative. Now, this uh, this particular initiative was, of course, proposed by the Chinese government sometime last month. It is calling for equal rights on AI development for all countries. So do you agree that all nations regardless of their size, their their economic power, their social or political system, should have equal rights in this regard? Because some people, some people or some country clearly doesn't see so. Well, Ding Hong, we have to recognize that artificial intelligence, especially when combined with robotics, uh, could transform human civilization by eliminating... Uh, all forms of material want, hunger, housing, clothing, etc. So from that perspective, I think certainly uh, every country, every person should have access to these benefits. Um, and we do see some countries uh, who see this more as a win-lose proposition, where they're looking to con- uh, retain or capture as much of the benefits for themselves as possible, And I think the way the world is going, um, as we become more interconnected, especially by the Internet, that this kind of behavior becomes very quickly, uh, it's transparent and very, very hard to defend. Mm. So this is somehow a, a very relevant question, Andy. How would you look at this very recently announced U.S. ban seeking to further restrict China's access to advanced AI chips made by American firms? Well, I think that um, this certainly is difficult for Chinese companies that bear the brunt of these sanctions. But at the same time, it is a spur to innovation to uh, develop perhaps even more quickly than uh, China might otherwise would have if they relied on American technology. So in this sense, I think this is backfiring. Uh, against the U.S. And I think, again, as we see uh, the world becoming increasingly uh, online with real-time information sharing, that any kind of unjust behavior uh, becomes rapidly transmitted around the world and uh, can spark a global outcry that creates tremendous pressure. So, uh, you know, this is self-defeating, I think, for the U.S. And finally, uh, American technologists, tech semiconductor companies depend on revenue, especially revenue from China, to fund their next generation of research and development. So this may actually undermine the long-term competitiveness of American semiconductor companies. Hmm. So another relevant question is that actually when we talk about, say, artificial intelligence, um, some people's view is that... Um, America or the United States in general is better at basic research, providing those basic knowledge, supporting artificial intelligence, while uh, entrepreneurs and startups here in China are better at are better at um, application side of the business. So, when this um, AI technological or uh, knowledge flow between these two countries, I mean the U.S. and China, is um, you know, cut down by some government behavior, some government action. How do you think that would impact the, the development of the entire uh, global AI industry? No, and that's absolutely true, Ding Hong. We look at it from a global perspective or the perspective of all of mankind. 
there are still enormous challenges and opportunities that technology can contribute to solving. So to the degree that the U.S., China, Europe, any other countries can bring their respective strengths, their comparative advantages to the table, the more likely it is and the more quickly it is we will have solutions. Um, But I have to say, too, that here, uh, while historically I think it's been true that the U.S. has certainly had a lead in basic research, um, this is also changing very quickly because this is a legacy mm. advantage that the U.S. had because for many years the best and brightest wanted to go to the U.S. And that's, I think, less true today than it was 30 years ago. Mm. That's indeed uh, something we need to take into consideration. So uh, in a bigger picture sense, Andy, when we talk about, say, cyber governance, philosophically speaking, do you think there is um, conflict or contradiction between uh, on one hand, building a more equitable, a more open, and a more vibrant cyberspace, and on the other hand, building a safer cyberspace. Oh, there absolutely is. And again, I mean, this is what politics and policy making is all about, right? Jing Hong, meaning that you have to make trade offs. So, for example, in the consumer facing technology world, there's always a trade-off between convenience and security. So if you want things easier to use faster, generally speaking, they're less secure. If you want them more secure, uh, they become a little bit less easy to use. So, so the trick is striking the right balance. And I think here, you know, again, China's political philosophy governance system is really not dominated by any one interest group. You know, like, say, in the U.S., I think, capital big tech companies exercise a disproportionate uh, influence that has not always been good for consumers or good even for the U.S. government, whereas in China, uh, the system is more about balancing in a rational and systemic, uh, comprehensive way these different interests. And I think history shows uh, the Chinese approach really has worked. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I think what we have to see, though, is when we move towards a global system of uh, managing AI, the internet, uh, cyberspace in general. Uh, how does this play out? Because again, there's many different parties, many different interests. So it certainly is a challenge. Mm. So this year is marking the 10th anniversary of this event, World Internet Conference. Uh, what do you think this event has achieved over the years? And do you think uh, globally there is uh, any increasing awareness or even recognition of this event? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's ironic that I remember in the early days of uh, the World Internet Conference uh, that it was largely dismissed in Western tech circles. And this conference, along with CIIE, uh, has really gained global stature uh, along with the rise of China and as China moves Uh, increasingly towards the center of the global stage, whether that's economically, diplomatically, or technologically. So I think it's not surprising, to me at least, uh, that uh, the Wuhan Conference or the World Internet Conference really has become uh, much more on the radar of people all around the world. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us and for providing us with a very rational analysis of this issue. That was Andy Mock, tech analyst and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. The delivery of China's first homegrown large cruise ship has attracted not only ardent tourists, but also Western skeptics. The latter are touting the idea the cruise ship can become an amphibious assault challenge and can be used for military purposes. Seriously? How true is such an assertion? Cruise through this and other questions on this week's Chat Lounge, anywhere you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanning, Beijing. The world's top consulting firm says China provides a fertile ground for the company to explore and innovate. At the ongoing China International Import Expo, Accenture Managing Director Robert Ha says his company is signing several strategic cooperation contracts with Chinese counterparts or Chinese firms during this year's event to advance their journey towards digital transformation. 
Now, in a conversation with my colleague Xu Yawen, Ha notes that he is particularly bullish about the digital economy in China, and with the Chinese government's supportive measures in digital innovation, he says he firmly believes that Chinese firms will unlock their potential when they fully embrace digitalization. As an Irish American company, Accenture has been operating in China for over 30 years now. Could you firstly elaborate more about Accenture's operation in the Chinese market in terms of serving Chinese companies to achieve their digital transformation goal? Yes. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here again at CIIE to be back. And this year is actually Accenture's fourth year at CIIE. And Accenture has been operating in Greater China for over 36 years at this point. Our focus is really on digital transformation. So over the past many years, we've been working side by side with clients to help them accelerate their digital transformation journey. So we serve many industries, from financial services to resources and consumer products and life sciences. Accenture has signed and held some more agreements with Chinese companies during the CIIE, reaffirming its commitment to be deeply rooted in China and to serve the Chinese market. Could you share with us more about your collaborations and also its prospects? Absolutely. First off, China is an integral part of the Accenture global business. It is one of our key strategic markets. This year at CIE, just like previous years, we are putting together our clients, platform partners, and us together, and we're signing a number of very important strategic collaboration contracts. These contracts span many different industries. Uh, including life sciences, retail resources, etc. So we are firmly committed to this market, and we hope through bringing some of the global best-in-class capabilities to China, we can help many Chinese companies continue to advance their digital transformation journey. We know Accenture recently released the research on China Digital Transformation Index, and in the report, it mentions that. Uh, about 46% of surveyed Chinese companies have plans to increase their investments in digital transformation, in particularly in AI and automation. So, what opportunities does that offer to Accenture? Yeah, absolutely. First off, this is、uh, the sixth year we are publishing the Digital Transformation Index, and this year we've actually upgraded our index in a little bit. Through the past few years, in working in collaboration with clients. We too have actually advanced our own understanding of digital transformation and what entails success. As a result, this year our new survey focuses on a number of key criteria in evaluating Chinese customers. The first is strategy. The second is innovation and operational excellence. Third is focused on talent. Fourth is focused on sustainability, and the fifth area is focused on what we call the digital core capabilities. Through the study, we've come to realize actually only two percent of Chinese enterprises can truly be classified as what we call reinventors. And what that means is there are a lot of companies in China right now still quite focused on maybe a functional aspect of digital transformation or doing minor tweaks. They are not really totally transforming the organization to embrace the power of digital. So what we said about a few years ago is digital transformation should really be your top priority. We're now saying total reinvention should be your top priority. I think compared to the global average of six percent, there is still some room to grow for us in China. And if you double-click and dissect the numbers, you will realize actually many Chinese enterprises tend to lean in into what we call operational excellence. So they focus on really squeezing operational efficiency out of Core areas like finance, HR, etc. In our world, we view digital transformation as much more holistic, which means that aside from operational excellence, you really need to focus on the areas that I talked about. So I think there is a lot of room to go, and I believe that we will be on this journey with many of the Chinese enterprises, and no doubt the number will go up over time. Another thing is, if we look at this in a broader picture, China's digital economy. Reached a scale of nearly seven trillion dollars last year,、um, making it the second largest in the world. And observers say China's digital economy is expected to become a pivotal driver of the country's economic growth. In your observation, what contributes to this remarkable growth? Yeah, I think there's two sides we have to look at this, and one is honestly to survive, the other is to thrive. And I think the last few years have taught us that. 
digital is an enabler for survival. If we did not have a lot of the digital enablers in place in the past few years, when there was you know uh, uncontrollable circumstances,、uh, business could not continue. So digital is required to survive. Now the other part, what I say, it's important to thrive. Is digital unlocks opportunities that in the past has never been before been done. For example, with the advancement in data and analytics, you now are able to connect with customer in a much more meaningful way.、Mm-hmm. You have hyper customer segmentation that can happen today that in the past will not be possible.、Mm-hmm. The ability to leverage technology such as Gen AI, which is a hot topic right now. Uh, it can create content that is customized for you as an individual versus for me, which would be completely different. So technology actually allows us to thrive and survive at the same time. And I think these are the driving forces to why companies are adopting digital. I think unlike the、uh, Western world, where there is a lot of infrastructure and legacy、um, considerations,、uh, China actually provides a fertile ground for us to explore and innovate and actually be leading edge. Especially in the digital economy. How do you assess China's position in the digital transformation globally, and what impact will it have on regional and、uh, even the worldwide developments? Yeah. So first, I, I would answer this in a, a, a few sections. First is, I think no doubt in the past few years there has been a lot of disruption happening in the industry, and Accenture actually annually publishes the disruption index. And what we found that is in the past six years, the digital disruption index has actually tripled, versus in 2011 to 2016, it has only gone up four percent. So the level of disruption that we are facing now is something we have not seen in the past.、Mm. As a result, Chinese enterprises are actually facing a lot of pressure in terms of what we call compressed transformation. You must transform as fast as you can. While meeting the requirements of various stakeholders, whether shareholders, employees, customers, etc., so that has created some challenges for many of our clients. But at the same time, this opens up tremendous opportunity, and for us, especially as citizens participating in global trade and the global economy, we need to think about how we will lean into digital to enable a lot of this. So at Accenture, we have a study where we've actually analyzed by 2030. The China GDP, which is expected to be about 26 trillion, there will be an incremental 1.7 trillion added to it if we embrace technology and digital. And most of this comes from international trade. So to enable that, you must lean in to some of the digital tools that allow this to happen. Why? Because technology actually shrinks the distance. You know, we're not going to be constricted by physical distance. So I think if companies are really to embrace the global trade, they must embrace how technology can ultimately disrupt and enable some of those、um, trades that are happening globally. How do you think of the role that Chinese governments plays in accelerating this process to help either the small and medium-sized company or the bigger company in China to achieve their digital transformation? So I think the China government is extremely supportive of digital innovation and development, and as a result, many companies are leaning in to actually leverage, you know, the openness of the digital economy. And so many of our clients right now are thinking about innovative and what we call China for China ways to actually push the digital innovation agenda. For example, there are amazing ecosystem partners that we can be partnering in China to advance our clients' progress and also. Uh, their access and their reach to customers. So that is what actually is happening, and I think I am particularly、uh, bullish about the digital economy in in China. Accenture Managing Director Robert Ha talking to my colleague Xu Yawen. More to come. China is currently hosting an international forum here in Beijing in a bid to foster inter-civilizational dialogue. We will take a look. So you're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break.
You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. China is hosting an international forum in Beijing in a move to foster dialogue between different civilizations. The Inter-Civilizational Communication and Global Development Forum has attracted some 150 officials, business leaders, scholars, as well as cultural celebrities from over 30 countries. Chinese President Xi Jinping proposed the Global Civilization Initiative earlier this year, calling for international people-to-people exchanges and respect for the diversity of civilizations. So, joining us now on the line is Eric Sohain, former executive director of the UN Environment Program. Eric has participated in this particular forum through video link. Thank you very much for joining us, Eric. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Also, we have、uh, joining us on the line Mr. Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Thank you very much for joining us, Ina. A pleasure, Dave. So, Eric, to start with you, why do you think to China it is an important mission to foster dialogue and communication between different civilizations? I think President Xi made a very interesting remark at the Belt and Road Summit in Beijing a couple of、uh, couple of weeks ago. He said that China can only do well if the world is doing well, and that's I think a brilliant approach to the world. We are not isolated in our own spheres. We need to work together, and I think President Xi and China believes that whatever is the main issue. Climate change, environment destruction, wars in Ukraine or Palestine,、uh, restarting the economy after COVID,、uh, avoiding new pandemic—whatever is the big issue of our time, we need to work together,、uh, and then we need a dialogue across、uh, across civilizations.、Mm. So, Ina, turning to you, this global civilization initiative actually came after President Xi Jinping. Put forward two other ideas.、Uh, one is the Global Security Initiative, and the other being the Global Development Initiative. Those two initiatives represent China's mentality on how to create greater security and greater economic prosperity, which I guess is important to any country or any government. But with regard to this civilization initiative, what do you think this idea is trying to address? Well, I mean, it, it, there has to be some sort of、uh, structure when you start talking about a multi-polar world,、uh, where each country is a sovereign nation which has the right to determine its own future. That its future should not be decided in the capital of a, another country. And, and you know, the three parts of this is security. All countries should be secure. Their, their their security should not depend on the insecurity of others, and vice versa. Uh, there has to be a path of development, taking care of people, providing with them the, not only the basics, but the things that will give them hope and stabilize the society. And, and the last part is goes back to my first point: every country is a sovereign nation. Every country has a, its individual mix of you know cultures, history, philosophy, languages, literature,、um, you name it, and it's different, and it has to be respected and learned. So the Global Civilization Initiative is really about this、uh, idea that there has to be respect between nations and also learning. I can't respect you if I don't understand you, and vice versa. And this is a very, very important part of、uh, what China is putting forward.、Mm. So, Eric,、um, some people say China is presenting this Global Civilization Initiative together with the other two initiatives that I mentioned. As a kind of a Chinese alternative to this Western-dominated,、uh, rules-based international order,、uh, that's the analysis by some people. But what is your take on this? Well, I'm very sorry to say to my American friends that the so-called rule-based international order is a joke in the eyes of most of humanity. Look, I'm dramatically opposed. Uh, to Russian occupation of Ukraine, but I'm also opposed to Israeli occupation through 56 years、uh, of Palestine. That's a principle stand. But being opposed to Russian occupation of Ukraine, but being fully supportive to Israeli、uh, occupation of Palestine, that's not a rule-based international order. 
And look, it was the United States and not China or any other power who withdrew from the Paris Agreement, from UNESCO, one of the most important UN entities, from the UN Organization for Palestinian Refugees, and basically also made the work in the World Trade Organization uh, very, 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 very difficult. So there is no rule-based American order to speak of. That's just propaganda. But what we need to achieve is, of course, what Anna is speaking about. We are, we are moving into a multipolar world. The two most important powers in that world are the United States or, China, uh, or America and China. But India, Turkey, Indonesia, South Africa, Brazil, Russia, everyone wants a say in that new order. And we need to make an order which everyone got a say and where, which is based on two words, in my view, respect. We need to respect each other and dialogue. Look, China will not adopt the American political system, but for sure more will the United States adopt the American political system. But we can still work together with mutual respect uh, and looking for where are the areas where we can work together to make the world a happier place. Hmm. So, Aina, would you agree in this point that some of these uh, uh, China-proposed initiatives uh, work better than this rules-based international order in terms of dovetail- dovetailing with the um, multipolarity that is emerging in the world today? Well, I have to agree with Eric. I mean, there is no, there's just the rule of America. There's no international order. I mean, uh, the U.S. refuses to allow the WTO to to operate because it refuses to allow the appointment of appellate judges. And appellate judges are necessary in order to render final opinions that are binding. And they refuse to do that, that not just under Biden, but Trump and also Obama. And, and it really represents this uh, turn away from this top-down, uh, this is more bottom-up, it's consensus, not corporate. So it's not about getting 51%. It's about sitting down with nations and figuring out, is it going to take longer? Yes. But in the end, you don't have the kind of aggravation of people walking away from the table saying, next time I'm going to get my way, or I don't really agree and I'm going to fight this. So it's harmony, not hegemony. And it's an acceptance and understanding differences, which is essential to harmony. I mean, I, I keep repeating myself, but I think it's so important. Um, in, in the past, you, you needed to know about the United States. You needed to know about your country and a few neighbors. Uh, but under a, a multipolar world, we need to know a lot more about each other. And uh, otherwise, you, how do you respect somebody you don't understand? It's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. So, Eric, uh, the Global uh, Civilization Initiative, I think uh, when President Xi Jinping first put forward this idea, he made it very clear this initiative maintains that peace, development, equity, justice, democracy, and freedom, these are really the common aspirations of the humankind. Now, of course, in real practice, I guess different governments, different uh, regions, different countries have different approaches, including uh, different social system, economic or political system, in order to pursue these very specific ideas or aspirations. So what do you think is going to happen if there is no respect for the differences here? If there is no respect for differences, we will create a completely chaotic world with also a lot of potential for conflicts. Look, the the big issue, basically, every developing nations have been facing for the last 100 years is how can my nation modernize, meaning using the most important new technologies, whether it was rail building, artificial intelligence, or how can we move into modernity? But not modernize, but not westernized at the same time. First nation who really cracked this code was Japan. Uh, Japan became very modern, mm-hmm. uh, but for sure it's never uh, anything similar to the United States. Korea is now very successful exporting their culture to the entire world, even in Korean language, and is one of the richest and most modern societies on earth. China is more Confucian. India may be more Hindu. Uh, Turkey, maybe more Muslim, uh, all nations are seeking to their roots while at the same time embracing science and, 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 and new technologies. And that, that's what we should 
that that's what we should look for because the nations who don't modernize will keep their po population in poverty. There is no alternative to modernizing, but every nation in the world also want to embrace and strengthen their own culture. Mm. If I allow me one really, really uh, inspiring example from Chinese history, when, when scholars asked who is the greatest emperor in the history of China, many people pointed to Tang Taizong, who was emperor from 628 to 648 in the Western Way Reckoning. Look, he brought to Xi'an those days the greatest scholar of Buddhism, of Taoism, of Islam, even Christians came from to Europe, and what did they do? He asked them to present their ideas for everyone to listen. He was not judging that one idea was better than the other, even if he may have had in his own tastes, and made Xi'an a vibrant intellectual center where every ideology uh, could uh, discuss with the other. That's mm -hmm. what we want to achieve. I mean, we will not have the same values in the world. I mean, I will not become a Hindu. Most <laughs> Chinese will for sure not become Hindus. Uh, but they have the deepest respect for Prime Minister Modi and his Hindu uh, strength in India, for mm. example. Okay, thank you very much. So, Aina, actually, Eric has just talked about some of the very important historical examples. He talked about uh, the Tang Taizong, this great emperor in the Tang Dynasty uh, in the uh, 6th or 7th century, more than a thousand years ago. Uh, as somebody who has been settling here in China for more than decades or more than two decades, uh, in, based on your understanding of China, do you think this country throughout its history as well as the present day has been good at learning from other civilizations? Yes, uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, when you mentioned the Tang Dynasty, um, I was just returned from Taizhou, which is uh, the home of Ho Ho culture. Um, and, you know, what it was was Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism mixed freely in Taizhou under, under the uh, emperor system. And what happened is they learned from each other, they tolerated each other. In fact, they blossomed because from Taizhou, Bud Buddhism was then moved to uh, Korea and also Japan, uh, where its, its roots are still uh, very much connected to Taizhou. So this idea that you have uh, different ideas have to be uniform is nonsense. Culture is something that flows. It is something that is, you know, is revisited. It comes back and forth. It grows richer with time and understanding and correct application. It is wrong when somebody appoints themselves and says, look, I'm the only one who knows what's right. Everyone shall adhere to my idea, whether it's religious or political. It has never worked out. So, you know, when, when you see the opportunities uh, that are out there for people to have different ideas but still live in harmony, uh, China has shown that. And when you start looking at the Belt and Road Initiative, that is a concrete example. I mean, there, the people are joining together, not over ideology. They're coming together over security, over development, uh, and respect. China, you know, Beijing is not telling these uh, other countries how to run uh, their, their countries, what to do. They're simply saying, we come in peace, we come in trade. Mm. So, Eric, I mean, ideally speaking, of course, everybody of us would like to see a scenario where uh, people learn from each other, and while at the same time, people respect each other, uh, each other's differences. That's the ideal situation. But realistically speaking, do you think there is a um, contradiction or conflict between these two uh, two things? No, really not. I mean, what was the genius of Deng Xiaoping? Uh, when he became the leader in China in 1978, he understood that China at the time was backward. I mean, it was much poorer than Europe, Japan, many other places. And he set out to learn. He himself went to Singapore, to Japan, to the United States, and he sent millions of Chinese students to all these places because he understood China need to learn from the world if we want to develop. Now, of course, it's a completely the opposite way around because China can still learn from the rest of the world but mainly the rest of the world can learn from China. Now other nations have brought more people out of poverty at, a, at such a scale in such a short time as China, and China is now the world leader in basically every green technology. 
But the attitude of Deng Xiaoping was so important because that's difficult with all elites everywhere in the world. The idea that we need to learn. We are not perfect. My nation may not even be the best, but I have a lot to achieve if I'm curious to what other nations have achieved. And it was difficult maybe for Deng, uh, but he did it and it has served China so well. And now the rest of the world should take the same attitude to China. We have a lot to learn from your experience. Mm. So, Aina, one one point you talk about earlier is that, for example, when we talk about this Belt and Road Initiative, one thing nice about about this initiative is that、um, China is now telling these partner countries, BRI partner countries,、uh, what you should be look like economically or politically. But some people, for example, some American analysts or politicians might. Uh, Criticize China for accommodating bad governance in, in in doing so. What is your, how would you respond to to that? Well, the hypocrisy knows no bounds.、Um, if you start looking at the number of things that the United States has done、um, in the interest of American exceptionalism,、uh, backing、uh, questionable governments,、uh, providing them with arms and ammunition, for instance, right now in Israel. You know, every bomb and bullet、uh, that destroys、uh, human life、uh, is coming from the United States.、Um, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer. I was a prosecutor and a defense attorney. I can tell you that if I supply you weapons, I know you're going to kill innocent people with. It's not only an act of terrorism, but I'm an accessory before and after the fact. If I continue to do that, so you know, at this juncture, for the U.S. to,、uh, to be saying that、uh, others are doing something untoward is nonsense. What China does is it does not go in and judge. The every country has to decide its own future, and it can be very tempting to say, "Oh, I should tell them how to do do it right." But it hasn't worked. If it was going to work,、uh, the U.S.、Uh, post World War II order would have changed the world. Are we more secure today than we were back then? I would answer no. I would answer that the the edges are fraying even within the United. Dissension, division.、Um, you know, you you have a large percentage of the people, twenty five percent of the people, who think that resorting to armed conflict within the United States might be necessary in order to restore their idea of what democracy is. I mean, it is inconceivable that、uh, you know people are saying these types of things. But mostly,、uh, it's an old trick. And in Washington, always accuse others of the sins you are committing.、Mm. So, by the way, Ina, how do you think a a country can keep learning from other countries or other、uh, civilizational patterns while refraining from losing its own genes? It's very simple. Don't don't have this、uh, arrogance to believe that you have all the answers. As long as you believe you can learn, all right, there is always possibilities. But the moment you become convinced that you only, you alone have the right answers and everyone else must follow you, then you know you're in decline. I mean, personally, I came to China because、uh, in 2000, when I first came, everyone I talked to said, "I want to learn. We're behind.、Uh, I, I, you know, thank you for coming. We really need people to teach us." And that、mm. attitude is still here, a little less so. But as long as you keep that alive. This idea of discovery and learning—you、uh, can go far.、Mm. So, Eric, as a former UN、uh, environment official or、uh, environment diplomat, do you think China has learned anything from the rest of the international community when we talk about, say, environmental protection, and when we talk about the other way around? Do you think there is anything in China's? Uh, conventional wisdom or philosophy that you think might be useful or inspirational to global efforts on environmental protection. Yeah, I mean, obviously, China has learned a lot from the rest of the world. Look, in 1978, China was one of the poorest nations in the world, was 180 on the ranking of、uh, of economies in the world per capita, much poorer than most nations in Africa. If China had remained under the rule of the Gang of Four, well, China would have remained poor. But then came then came Deng with a new approach, a new economic policy, and he was inspired by what he saw 
uh, in the West and try to implement some of these aspects in China without embracing everything from the West. And it served China so well. And this attitude that we can learn, let's learn, we are curious, that's what every nation should really do. And now, of course, China is the world leader on every green technology. 60 to 80 percent of all solar, wind, hydropower, high-speed rail, electric cars, electric batteries are all in one nation alone. Uh, a week ago, I visited Seattle in, in Ningdo in Fujian province. Uh, that's the number, by far the biggest battery maker in the world. And they are the lead nation, maybe the most important technology for the future, how we can store electricity in cars, but for sure also from solar and wind. When the wind is not blowing, the sun is not shining, we need to store it. And this company well, has come from basically nothing to now dominating this field. And you can go on and go on. China is the lead nation on everything going green. Sorry to say, the West have not really understood it yet. Many people in the West still believe China is the horrible, polluted place. It may have been 15 years ago. I mean, 15 years ago, I would never go jogging in Beijing. For sure not. I didn't want to inhale that smoke. Now, you see the sky. You see the, you see the sun. Uh, the air is fresh. Uh, China has basically won the war on pollution. And it's done it in a record time. So there's so much to be learned from all other actors in the world. So I can just tell my all my friends in Africa, India, and indeed the United States and Europe, please open your eyes. Please go to Beijing and learn. And then you may get some new ideas to can, you can take back home. And frankly, Western companies need to get up very early in the morning if they want to compete with BYD on electric cars, on CATL on electric uh, batteries, or for that matter, be longer on solar energy, or whatever it may be. Mm. Learning uh, across cultures are so essential. Okay. So, Aina, when we talk about, say, this is something that Eric has uh, highlighted, when we talk about China's leading position today uh, in green economy, some of the specific industries like solar panel, EVs, uh, those landmark corporate names like BYD and CATL, do you think they are... These developments are the result of China learning from others or China working hard on its own, incubating its own industries? Well, let's separate. I mean, when I first came to China, the idea of environmental studies was very strange to people. They just said, you know, they didn't really understand. You you, you had a number of incidents where you had pollution, uh, rivers being poisoned. Uh, milk being present, people just didn't understand, they didn't have uh, an educational background where they could understand the cause and uh, consequences of what they were doing. But over the years, and it has, and what's really important uh, about, it's not so much what China learned from the, the West, that a lot of the technologies were there, but China applied them and in mass. Why? Planning. This is the major difference between China and so many other countries in the world. China plans. They have a, uh, a five-year plan, which is reviewed yearly. They have a you know ten-year, fifteen, twenty, hundred-year plan, and that is something that is lacking because you, with when governments change constantly, the plans change, the priorities change, and often a lot of work that was done before gets discarded until the next uh, next administration decides they want to go back to it. So China has it's the consistency of effort, uh, the willingness to say this is important, green energy is important, the environment is important, and then do something about it you know, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. That is what makes a difference. Mm. So Eric, um, historically speaking, civilization was sometimes was seen as a vocabulary used by colonialists because they branded uh, themselves as civilized people and they have this mission, they have this even, they, they see it as a responsibility to civilize the uncivilized people in other parts of the world back then in history. What do you think is fundamentally different when China talks about civilization today? I mean, obviously, the word civilization used in that uh, way was an absolute joke. 
uh, Western civilization force or the UK forcing China <laughs> to use uh, use uh, narcotics, being a global drug dealer, fighting opium wars against China, or orchestrating uh, big hungers in India, killing millions of people. Uh, that kind of civilization was an absolute joke at the time. What we need now to do now is to focus on the best aspects of the different civilizations and how we can how we can live together. And of course, at any time in human history, until 1800, China was the most advanced civilization. During Han Dynasty, maybe the Roman Empire was more or less the same size, more or less the same population, more or less the same achievements. But at any, at any other point before 1800, China was the most civilized, the biggest cities, the biggest empires, highest part of the population you could read and write, uh, best uh, living standards, whatever, whatever way you measure it. So China has been a dominant uh, civilization in world history. But now it's time has come to respect each other, respect the Indian civilization, the Arab, the Western, and of course the Chinese and the, the many, many others and learn from, from each other. And main difficulty with this is still the Western arrogance. I think it may have been Mahatma Gandhi who was once really, really destroying it. He was asked, what do you think of Western civilization? And he answered, that would have been a very good idea indeed. Uh, so, but Westerners still tend to believe that, uh, or at least many, that their civilization is superior. Why it has created, yes, some absolute achievements to the world, say the United States of America being the first republic in modern history, or the United States bringing a lot of science and, and economic power to the world. So have, the West has brought a lot, but it has also brought a, brought a lot of havoc. And now we should focus on how we can work together, the different civilizations, and learn, learn from each other, because there's so much to be learned uh, if you, as a Chinese, look to the West or to India, or if you're uh, from an uh, from the West, look to say China and India. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for putting a, uh, for putting this very complicated issue into perspective. And I, I guess going forward, definitely, we need to keep learning while at the same time imparting our own knowledge to the rest of the international community as well. But thank you. That was Eric Sohein, former executive director of the UN Environment Program, as well as Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>